Are you looking to buy or sell a home? Wondering where to start? Do you have questions about mortgage and real estate and need honest, accurate answers? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to The Educated Home Buyer with expert real estate broker, Jeb Smith, and certified mortgage consultant, Josh Lewis, where we discuss everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Welcome back to The Educated Home Buyer, where we discuss everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership and financing. In our episode last week, we took a deep dive into the pre-approval process to give you a detailed look of exactly what that looks like. Today, we're going to go a different direction and talk about the current housing market and what's driving home prices. Josh, where do we start? Well, the the obvious and easy one is uh, Econ 101, uh, which is supply and demand. I actually sounds- skipped that in college. I wasn't there for that you- class. so <laughs> I don't, I don't I, think I, it- I stayed out too late. I don't think at East West Carolina University they even have Econ 101. Don't they just they're the kids well, are so advanced East they West, move them they move them straight. Uh, East Carolina, don't they just move? I'm butchering it. There's only North and South Carolina, but somehow you went to East Carolina University. I don't even know how that works, bro. We create we're our own little you know paradise, if you will. Is 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 there West Carolina University as well? Uh, there's not, they couldn't, they couldn't even come up with that after East Carolina. It was, they couldn't do it. So anyways, at East Carolina university, they're so advanced. They skip forward to econ 201, but in econ 101, you learn about supply and demand. So it sounds super easy. There's a very limited supply of homes and a large demand for them right now, but let's, let's dig deeper into it, Jeb, because it's not just as simple as, um, supply and demand. We, you know, one of the things we, we talk about is the difference between willing and able demand, um, supply of homes. We still have, if you drive out to Las Vegas, you see lots of empty land. We could build as many homes as we need at as low a cost as possible. So why don't we dig into what supply and demand economics looks like in the current housing market? Yeah, no, I mean, exactly. I mean, everybody talks supply and demand and supply and demand drives everything, not just housing prices. It it drives you know the cost of food, the cost cars. Let, let's talk about cars for a minute, right? Cars, because of, of, you know, bottlenecks and chips and all of these things happened over the last two years or the lack of things happening. We've got cars selling at premiums that we've never seen possible because of supply and demand. But we're talking about housing. So let's talk about it for a minute. So currently in the U.S., we're behind somewhere between four and six million units uh, to keep up with current demand, right? Or the current growing population, if you will. And so that is a lack of supply. But let's talk a minute here, Josh, and dig into why. Why do we have four to six million units short to start let's let's take a minute and talk about that and then we can dive into some of the other things about a lack of building and and how that all translates into where we are at the moment so we've got this is why this is a really deep dive topic if you wanted to get wonky on the economics which most most of you listening at home don't want to Um, but you have a number of things you have land use regulations we have building costs we have the the regulatory environment where the number I believe is about $79,000 in planning and permitting before the builder puts a shovel in the ground. So they had to buy the land, 
then they have to pay to build the property, but in between $79,000 of planning and permitting, and you wonder why we have a lack of affordable housing. But Jeb, going back to, to the part where we're, we're any, depending on whose numbers you look at, we're four to six million units shy of the appropriate amount of housing in the United States to keep supply and demand in balance. Why is that? Well, builders built really heavily into the last bust. Home builder stocks were going through the roof in 2005, 2006, um, record levels of building. And we actually had my generation, Generation X, was a smaller generation between uh, the baby boomers, between the millennials, which were both really large generations. We had a small generation of people coming into prime home buying age and record home building. Then you, you throw on top of that all the economic chaos that was going on. It was a recipe for builders to get stuck with a ton of inventory, uh, whether it's buildable lots or finished homes that can't be sold. So builders were scarred by that and have never got back to building the same level of homes. Yet now here we are 15 years later, closing in on 15 years later, and that next generation of millennials, which we'll get into that under the demographics, but millennials are a bigger generation now than baby boomers, and they're coming into prime home buying age, and we've been underbuilding for the last 15 years. So you, you have builders scarred by the last downturn and, and getting stuck with losses of, of holding inventory um, that people didn't want. We have a regulatory environment that takes time, effort, energy, and most importantly, money and pushes costs high. We have banking regulations that makes it very hard to get those projects financed. So everything, I don't think our government for the most part ever sits back and says, let's do stupid things that make things impossible. They start with good intentions and don't think through the unintended consequences. And here we sit 15 years later, 5 million units shy of the amount of housing we need for the current population. No, that, I mean, good. It's great information. But what do you say to the person, Josh, that says, hey, listen, you know, I, I saw the headline and it said housing starts are at a at a new high for the year or permits being pulled are at a new high. I mean, how does that translate into homes being built? And, and is it is it new construction that's going to balance supply and demand? I mean, let's talk about it. I mean, you know, how many homes need to be built. I mean, obviously you don't know the exact number, but you know, everybody says, well, it's just, you know, there's all this land out there. Why can't you just go build on it? Well, let's talk about what that actually looks like. So in, in areas like, so for us, we're in Southern California, right. Southern California is a unique area and then it's pretty much built out. And now we have um, politicians of a certain stripe who want to ascribe not in my backyardism to people who just want their neighborhood to be what they bought in. So we've now in California um, concluded, our politicians have concluded that the solution is eliminate zoning regulations, let people throw units in their backyard, let them convert their garage. We don't need parking, we'll park out on the street. Lots of areas like Los Angeles are old cities with narrow streets, didn't have lots of parking to begin with. Now we're gonna throw extra units on there. So when you think about that, you are qualitatively changing a neighborhood. If someone bought um, thinking that, hey, these are single family homes on 6,000 square foot lots with two car garages, now the garage is an extra unit uh, and an ADU in the backyard and the garage is a JDU, you got three units sitting next door to your single family residence. I, I don't think that's that's not in my backyardism to say, I don't want that. That's not what, what I bought. 
but um, that's sort of the battle in terms of regulations for for land use and zoning. Um, but that's not the case in, in lots of parts of the country where they have plenty of buildable area. You know, uh, for, almost everyone's been to Vegas. If you fly into Vegas, they just keep stretching out further into the desert every time you, you go there. So, yeah, the jobs are closer to the city center. It's a little bit longer of a commute, but you have different issues in different parts of the country, depending on how much land you have available and, and what can be built. For the most part, Southern California is built out and barring us packing more people into a smaller area and converting residential areas into multifamily areas, that's not going to change. So it's not going to bring additional supply into the market. But your, your question was, okay, we have record levels of building permits, but if you look due to um, constraints on limits in, in skilled labor in construction and limits in supplies, the, the, the completed units are not at record levels and they're not keeping pace with what we need to supply the, the population. So if we want to um, bring a five to six million housing unit shortfall in line, you would have to build an extra half million for 10 years. We're nowhere near building an extra half million a year. So that building is not going to resolve this in the next 10, 15, 20 years. And towards the end of that, remember, beyond the millennials will be another smaller generation. So once they work their way through it of bought homes and we have baby boomers dying off, which it's a horrible, morbid thought, but that's just the reality, the way father time works, that uh, you know, the thought was that would bring a bunch of supply into the market, but we're not seeing that as baby boomers are aging in place, staying in their homes, buying second homes. Um, it, it's it's a weird uh, look at what people expected to happen, say, from 2000 to 2022 and what has actually happened over those those 20 plus years. No, and, and we're going to talk about more of that when we talk about the demand. But while we're talking about supply, I mean, you made a point, you know, it doesn't matter how many permits are being pulled or how many housing starts there are. It matters how many are actually being completed. Right. And real estate's local. Right. I want to make sure we're, we're all on the same page with this. Depending on where you're located in the United States, you might have plenty of, of new building happening. We're located in Southern California dense. We're by the coast, right? There's not a lot of opportunities to build new property. And therefore, our view on, on building is probably a little bit more skewed than somebody in, in, in middle America where there's plenty of land available. So I just want to make sure we're touching on that because it might be a little bit different. But so while we're talking about, you know, inventory, you talked about restrictions or cost on home builders. That's part of it. Let's talk about supply bottlenecks, right? pandemic happened, you know, again, we, we were already underbuilt or, or a lack of building, you know, to keep up with current demand was already in place. And then you throw the pandemic on top of it, right? The pandemic didn't create this issue. It just um, it made it, it accelerated it because it, it put, you know, uh, issues with regards to getting lumber, with regards to getting materials that you need to actually build homes. And a lot of people don't realize that a lot of the lumber that we get comes from places like Canada and Canada wasn't doing any, you know, sort of, you know, export, if you will, during the pandemic, just because of how strict their, their guidelines were. So we were really limited on lumber and lumber costs shot through the roof. And if you were paying attention at all during that time, you saw the cost of new construction in a lot of these markets go up considerably because of that. And even when lumber costs came back down, 
still hasn't reached, you know, pre-pandemic levels. But even when it came back down, we didn't see builders go, you know what? We're just going to drop our prices now. They stayed there, right? And so the, the, they're making that that margin on on that you know that excess. They're getting that excess profit, if you will, on on that rising cost that they were building into those those properties as the cost went up. But it's not just lumber, right, Josh? It's garage doors, it's rain gutters, it's appliances, it's windows. I talked. Well, actually, I read an article in Wall Street Journal on on one of them about building about a new can a builder building in Florida, and they're ordering windows for new developments a year in advance before they ever break ground on these communities. They're ordering all the windows that they need for these properties because of how long it's taken to get it. At the same time, I have a friend that's building homes in Florida, and they're talking the same thing: issues with getting supplies. So that's part of it. Em- employees, right? Nobody wanting to work. You know, finding good quality workers actually showing up and, and being willing to put in the work to build these houses is also an issue. You know, that's well, Jeb, let, let's go back and look at the flip side. So um, some of you may know from 2008 through 2012, I primarily supported myself flipping houses. And it was a great time for flipping houses because there weren't that many uh, construction jobs and projects available. So the people who you would hire were the better construction workers, better finished carpenters, better concrete guys, better framers, better drywallers, better painters. And you were getting a really good price from them because they were happy to work. And if you give them a volume of work now, when you're saying there's more than enough jobs to go around, the people that are there, a lot of these jobs are being done by the low end worker. The guy that's lazy, that doesn't want to put in a full day's work, the guy that's done this for six months and he's finishing your concrete versus the guy that's done it for 20 years and is, is a, a craftsman and an expert. So you're getting a, a lower quality of work um, and you're paying more for it because there's more jobs than there are people to complete them. And where this comes back to supply and demand, where we lack the most supplies for the entry level first time buyer. We talked about the cost of permits. We talked about, well, we didn't, but we can talk about the cost of land. Everyone knows land costs have gone up. We talk about material costs. We talk about labor costs. So that drives the cost of homes up. But let's think of it in terms of, you used the example of the auto industry. The auto industry does not want to make uh, economy sedans for the, the first time buyer to get, because if, they're, if it's a $20,000 car, they might have $2,000 of profit in that, if they're lucky. On an $85,000, $95,000 Suburban, they've got $20,000 of profit. So one unit brings in 10x the profit. We're seeing the same dynamics in housing that a builder says, okay, if I go cheaper on all the materials, smaller on the house, I'm going to have 5 to 10% profit in a $325,000 property. So if I'm lucky, I make thirty dollars to $50,000 for a year and a half, two years worth of work, more, including the planning and permitting. Or... I can build a $650,000 house and I can have $100,000 profit in it. We know what's getting built. The inventory getting built, it's nice. There's plenty of people wanting six and seven and 800 and million and $2 million homes. But that's the market that's being catered to and the people that are hurting the most and needing the most help and additional supply is the entry level buyer. And they're, they're just those homes are just not getting built. The median price of new construction homes continues going up at a higher clip than the median price of existing construction. No, good good point. I mean, that that brings us into demand, right? Who's driving the demand on the entry level? It's, you know, you mentioned earlier, millennials becoming prime buying age. The average age that someone starts to buy a house or or get into that 
that home buying phase is around 33 years old. And that's the generation at the moment, the millennial generation is starting to hit that prime buying age. In fact, they've been there for a couple of years and they're going to continue to be at that 33 year old age for the next two to three years, I believe it is. So you've got a lot of millennials reaching prime buying age and people are going, well, how are they affording these homes, Josh? How, how are millennials affording, you know, properties at these levels? Well, we know, I mean, from talking to different people, clients and, 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 you know, people you've done loans for money's coming in the form of, of, you know, different ways. There are parents giving millennials money because they've seen record home prices. You know, they're pulling it out of their, their houses, giving the kids, you know, money for down payment. Grandparents are going into inheritances early to the trust account. Instead of leaving stuff to, to the family after they pass away, they want to see them enjoy it while they're here. So they're giving them money up front. In addition to that, millennials, a lot of them had really good paying jobs coming out of college. A lot of them have lived at home a lot longer than I did. I moved out at 18 and never went back. A lot of them are 29, 30 years old, still living at home, able to save money. So there's a lot of money coming from that millennial generation buying homes. But it's not just millennials, Josh. Who else is buying those properties? Well, just on that millennial topic, we've got, uh, it's not just, everyone thinks these people have to be getting help. Yeah, a lot of them are, but we do, Jeb, have a, a lot of clients that, that don't rely on help. So yeah. think about it for, for in our market, entry level home, depending on where, where you're at, low end single family in Southern California is 500 on the entry level, a high end entry level, like here for us in Huntington Beach, is a million dollars. We have people buying those properties as a first time buyer, as a, a 35, 37, 38 year old and doing it without help. What does that look like? It's two family household, two income household, mom and dad, or no kids, husband and wife, both making $80,000. They make $160,000. No one's going to look at someone making $80,000 and say, oh, they're killing it. But together as a family, two young people, $160,000, that's what is it puts us at $13,000, dollars a month at a 30, 40% debt to income. They can handle a four or $5,000 a month payment. They don't want a four or $5,000 a month payment, right. but they can do it. And with an FHA loan with three and a half percent down at 700,000, $25,000 or so savings can get it done. Like you talked about, live at home for a few years we have that see that all the time i had a set of buyers last year they um they were married the first two years they were married both of them making uh, close to six figures sitting at home and just stacking money in the bank and they ended up putting you know one hundred fifty thousand dollars down on a six hundred fifty thousand dollar house they made close to two hundred thousand dollars and it was doable so I don't certainly don't want anyone listening to this go, well, that's not me. That's not my reality. It's not everyone's reality, but we do have a, a lot of folks out there doing that. So to move on to answer your question is who else is buying homes? We don't see so much this in Southern California because of the economics of what home prices are, how high home prices are, and then how the rents don't give you nearly as big a yield relative to that home price. But in other parts of the country, in Phoenix, um, in the Atlanta area, we see uh, throughout Texas, investors, institutional investors, hedge funds buying up thousands of homes. And people go, why are they doing this? Why are they paying with cash? If you're a hedge fund manager and you have billions of dollars that you have to get to work, the hardest thing for you to do is to find relatively safe investments that give you a decent yield. So we've gone through these numbers. In a lot of parts of the country, a $300,000 house is going to rent for close to $2,000. So that's $24,000 a year 
yield on a $300,000 investment, that's a nice return on, on your money there, but you're also getting some tax benefits and you're also the last several years getting appreciation on top of that. So it's been a very good investment for institutional investors in the right markets. So for them, it's the right market. If you're a first time buyer in the wrong market, you're going up against cash offers from institutional investors versus other first time buyers, just like you. Well, let's talk about that too, because not only is the institutional investors coming in with cash, you have, you know, there's kind of a sequence of events that that happens, and, and this isn't always uh, going to be true. But what happens is, you know, the 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 millennials, the first time home buyers, typically are buying the you know the entry level homes, right? Well, the entry level homes, those people are selling those homes and buying something a little bit larger. We call those move up buyers. Those people, maybe something changed in their life. Uh, maybe they were single, maybe they were married with no kids. Now they have a couple of kids. They need a larger property they, or a better school district or whatever it is. So they they sell that property and they move up. And then at the same time, you've got people that, you know, have had kids. The kids are off to college. You know, they're empty nesters. They don't need the big house anymore. And they're looking to downsize. So not only do you have millennials coming in, you have the move up buyers. You have some move down buyers, you know boomers can be in that move down situation a little bit, but you also have the boomers who haven't really, you know, decided to sell like a lot of people thought they would uh, for one reason or another. A lot of them are living longer. They're more healthy, more active. They can handle the stairs when people thought that they would need to sell and downsize and buy the single level. And then there are those that are looking at the single level homes going, it's really expensive to buy that single level home. I can just stay put where I am at the moment and, you know, don't have to make that transition and I can still keep my house that I've lived in my entire life and I'm good to go. And so, you know, or make modifications to it where they can make that work. So you've got a lot of players, if you will, in that generational um, buying pool, if you will. And so all of those people adding in there is is what's creating the the demand, if you will, with regards to real estate. Now, it's being um, we talked about the pandemic, the, the pandemic accelerating it. Let's talk about interest rates. Interest rates have been a key driver, Josh, when it comes to house prices. Not, I mean, absolutely. And even though we've seen house prices rise, I mean, uh, interest rates rise recently, we've still seen, you know, house prices continue to rise as well. So what's driving interest rates at the moment? Well, let's let's take a, a small step back and say, we talked about supply and demand. Anytime there's less supply, then there is demand that's gonna push prices up. Now, when we transition, that's one element of it. And we went through all those reasons. Now you're saying interest rates, what role do interest rates play in that? Well, interest rates have been going down. So people don't pay cash for their homes for the most part, unless you're a hedge fund. So they're financing 80%, 90%, 97%, depending on, on what type of loan. So as interest rates go down, people care far less about the price of the home versus the monthly payment relative to their household income. So when we look at that, home prices were going up. One of the things we talked about in 2019, home prices were already going up, but interest rates were coming down still. So in terms of affordability, affordability was better in 2019 than it was in 2018. Same for the first half of 2020. Until we hit the bigger appreciation in late 2020, the fact that rates were coming down was more than offsetting the higher prices. People really care, can I afford that monthly payment on a 30-year fixed rate? Am I cool with that? And how does it compare to rent? So 
with rates, we have a 40-year downtrend in interest rate that has been a big tailwind to higher home prices. So if you look at home prices to median incomes in 1982, before that downtrend started, their uh, uh, home prices are at a much higher multiple of median incomes now than it was then. And people will look at it and say, homes are overpriced, they have to come down. And I go, no, that's not true. People don't give a shit what the price of their home is. What they care about is what their monthly payment is. So when you look at monthly payment as a multiple of household income, we're pretty much in line with where we've been. Until very recently, we were more affordable um, than we had been in in previous times, in previous um, peaks in, in a real estate cycle. So we don't really see that being broken anytime soon. We're seeing inflation at the highest levels since that 1982 timeframe. If that were to continue on, yes, we would have higher interest rates and that 40 year downtrend would be broken. And that would be a, now a headwind for home prices and turn that around. We don't expect that to happen because nothing has changed other than COVID, I say other than COVID, now we've got a war, a major world power involved in a war, which could be causing increases in energy costs, increases in food costs, um, causing more problems for global supply chains. So operating under the assumption that COVID works its way through the system in another year or two, all the COVID stimulus is gone, all the COVID supply chain bottlenecks are gone. Um, eventually this war is going to end um, and those supply chain bottlenecks go away. The larger strategic structural economic issues that led to the lower interest rates, which is primarily massive, unsustainable federal uh, debts with governments around the, the country of almost all industrialized worlds, except for Russia, paradoxically. Um, that tells us that rates are going to remain low for a, a long time. Governments don't have really any other option but keeping rates lower. And it's not even so much governments manipulating rates lower. It's that in combination with the fact that excessive federal debt in an industrialized economy leads to lower growth and lower interest rates going forward. So don't expect that to change. What I can say is the tailwind of going from 15% mortgage rates to two and a half percent mortgage rates is much greater than going from two and a half to two or two and a half to one and a half. So we'll still have the support uh, and, and likely not a headwind of, of rising interest rates going forward, but we're not gonna have that massive tailwind of decreasing interest rates, pushing home prices higher. No, good good information. Now, I heard you mention the cost of of goods rising potentially and that sort of thing, right? Which brings up the topic of inflation. We know uh, you know, Fed Chairman Powell is likely to start raising the Fed funds right here, you know, in the in the next month, right? The meetings, I believe the 15th and 16th of March, they're going to raise the Fed funds rate at least a quarter basis point from there. Could be three, five, seven, ten times this year, depending on who you listen to. Probably not anywhere close to the the latter number, but right with with the Fed funds rate going up, what historically has happened with interest rates when the Fed starts to raise the Fed funds rates during an inflationary period? There's a super clear correlation. It always brings interest rates down. The reason being is the Fed has not acted or last year actually continued to stimulate when inflation was getting out of control. And the bond market finally here in December of 21 and especially into January of 22 said, hey, enough with this. We're gonna demand higher yields. If the Fed's not gonna do what they're supposed to do to keep inflation under control, we're gonna demand higher yields. Now, 
at least through the first quarter of the year or, or into March, by the end of the month, the Fed will have stopped all their bond buying. They won't be buying treasuries. They won't be buying mortgage-backed securities. So there's one form of stimulus gone. Powell testified this morning and basically said, quarter percent at our next meeting. So we know that's coming. There's probably at least three more coming. The only thing that would have changed that uh, or that could change that is the situation with the war in Russia. If it really impacts global economies and slows things down, they may not have the leeway to do it. Our hope is that that situation settles down and that the Fed is able to at least get four rate hikes in here before we get to something resembling a recession. You know, it was painful in 2018 when the Fed embarked on a rate hike cycle um, and it slowed the economy, pushed us into recession and led to lower interest rates. But it was good in terms of it, it sort of slowed down growth and got inflation under control. And we expect the same thing to happen here. No, good stuff. Um, so what I hear you say is that, you know, more or less the Fed raising the Fed funds rate should not only control inflation, but it should bring rates back down. I don't know if that's good or bad for housing at the moment, just because that just continues that, you know, that fuel on the fire, if you will. And it might continue to push house prices up just depending on a lot of other factors that we mentioned earlier. One thing we didn't touch on earlier, though, when we talked about supply, you know, we're fortunate enough. And I guess unfortunate enough to live in California, uh, depending on which side of this you're on. But Both. California, <laughs> exactly. But one thing that California has, which is a huge benefit to those that own property and have owned property for some period of time, is something called Prop 13. Prop 13 allows homeowners to keep their tax taxes low. Um, it, it's you know it's based off one percent of where you purchase the price uh, or where you purchase the property rather, and your taxes can't increase more than two percent a year you know, at any point. And, and so it keeps taxes low. So so those boomers, if you will, that have bought their properties back in the 50s and 60s that still own them, their property taxes are really, really low. And if they were to sell their property and move, a lot of those boomers can take their taxes and move it to another property. But if you're in my position or Josh's position for that matter, and where, you know, we've owned our homes, mine, I've been in mine, just over 10 years. Josh, you mentioned 19 years, I think, in, in one of the other episodes. So our property taxes are based off when we bought them. Our My house has doubled in price since I purchased it. Josh is pretty much in the same, same boat there, but I'm not 55. I don't have the ability to take my property taxes and move them to another property. Um, you know, And so therefore, if I go out and buy another property, not only am I paying more money for the property, probably paying a higher interest rate than the 2.99% I have locked in at the moment, I'm also going to get hit with property taxes that is pretty much going to, you know, double, triple, quadruple what I'm actually paying now. So that is a factor that keeps people like myself from looking at the market going, should I sell my house or am I okay? Can I just keep this and, and work with the property I have? Maybe do an addition, maybe build an ADU, maybe do something like that so that I can avoid those those huge hikes in taxes. And that's another factor that's keeping supply low. But I don't know if you want to dive into that further, Josh, or just move into, you know, the last thing, which is migration patterns. Yeah, the, the last thing that's, that is definitely impacting the market, but is going to be hard to quantify is that a lot of people have been given the geographic freedom to move about the country. You, you don't you can keep your job. Um, your good paying job and go live wherever you want. So um, 
everyone is cursing Californians now because they're taking their high California incomes, moving to a lower cost area, um, some of them with equity from their appreciated California homes and pushing values through the roof, whether that's Boise, Austin, Phoenix, Nashville, tons of areas have seen big increases in prices. Now, you know, on our YouTube live, Jeb, every week, doesn't seem like every week someone asks the question, well, what happens when businesses realize, well, you live in Nashville now, I don't need to pay you New York City money, or I don't need to pay you Silicon Valley money. It's a valid question. I don't know that's gonna happen, but it could. Um, and and I, I don't know how many people are willing to pick up and relocate. We've seen it, we've seen it, um, you know, you, you hear stories, we've seen clients, you've had sellers that have moved out of the area. So I absolutely know it's happening. It's going to be, you know, five years before we get good data on it and know how prevalent it was and what impact it had on the market. But but why are people moving? Right. We, we know that that, you know, work environments have gone to hybrid or they've gone to completely online and therefore you don't need to be there. But that's not the only factor driving people out of states like, say, California. Let's use that for an example. You have politics that, that play a part in it. You have uh, taxes. Right. There's there's big companies moving their businesses out of out of California because of taxes. And we talked about the, you know, the hybrid work, you know, uh, model and all of that. But just think if you were in downtown LA and you had to drive through that traffic every day, you probably hated your life. I, I hated it for you because I just did it recently and it was awful. But I, you know, being able to say, you know what, you can work from home now and looking at going, hey, I can take my California income and I can go to Phoenix and buy three times the house of what I could buy here in Southern California, you know, my state income taxes are less. I mean, there's many benefits to, to, to making that transition out of state. And that's one of the reasons that we've seen the migration that we have. And there's, you know, I, I forget the, the number that I saw, you know, there was a survey done and it was a large percent, like over half, I think like around three quarters, a percent of businesses said that they weren't going to go back to that, you know, that business model where, you had to come in, in, into the office. It was going to be a lot of the zoom type meetings. If anything, they were going to, you know, fly employees in one day a week or one day a month or whatever for, for these meetings. But you know, the reality is people are able to get outside of, of the densely populated areas and, and still have, you know, the, the good paying jobs, the equity from, from sales or whatever it is, or just a better quality of life by, by moving out of state. There, there's a lot of factors that are that are driving it, um, and we'll see. We'll see over time. Some of these things, if you remember, they're just a fad. They're a trend. People think they want to do it, and then yeah. things change, and they they move back or they go back to their old way of doing things. For right now, it, it's real and it's impacting markets outside of the major markets where people are saying, "Hey, if we look at cost of living, like uh, a a dinner out is going to cost the same in Texas as it does in California." but a house doesn't cost the same. Uh, taxes are different. So the houses and the property taxes are the two biggest things. So you say houses, property taxes, and politics, and then the ability to take your income for a lot of these people when they leave, it's untethering people from locations where they were previously stuck. And it is having an impact on, on the market. Time will tell um, how permanent it is and give us better measurements of how big of an impact. No, you made a good point there. I mean, I, I I have friends that that did the transition and said, you know what, I'm going to Texas. Texas sounds like a great place to live. And they bought a house. One one actually bought a house in Austin and he was there for like six months. And he said, I can't do this. And so kept his house in Austin, didn't sell it, moved back to California and is currently renting. 
just, you know, trying to figure out. So you're going to have some regrets. You're going to have some people that, that have the resentment of, you know, the, the idea that the grass is greener wherever they decided to move. And, and then you're going to have the other side where people are super happy and, and glad they make the transition. So it'll be interesting to see where it goes, but the reality is it's not going to happen in the short term, which means that house prices probably aren't going to be affected too much by that. So um, you know, I haven't done this in an episode before, but I'd like to ask a favor. If you guys are listening to this, you enjoy the content, you're finding any value, you know, rate us on whatever platform you're using. It does help to get it out there. And we're going to continue to put these episodes out. It's going to be weekly. We're going to do it on Tuesdays. So make sure you tune in for our next episode where we take a deeper dive into the current market with regards to real estate. Hope to see you then. Thanks for listening to the educated home buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.